It is great to have each of you with us this morning. As we get uh, started with the message, I actually want to tell you some bad news. Normally, this service, you don't have to worry about me going long. And in the second service, I can go as long as I want. Uh, at the end of this service, we have Sunday school that follows, so I always try to get you out on time, at least close, uh, so the Sunday school teachers can do their job. Well, this morning, you're going to probably get a slightly longer message than the second service, because as soon as the second service is over, I'm out of town. Uh, we're going to Myrtle Beach, and we'll be gone for about a week. It'll be a blessing to be able to be with my family, actually, my brother and his family are coming, and my sister and her family are coming. And I think it's actually, this will be the first time we've ever all gotten together at one time. So it will be a blessing to be able to go and enjoy some time with them. So thank you for your grace. If I go a little longer this morning, I'm making up for what I would do in the second service normally. So I do want to thank you for worshiping with us today, and I want to start this morning with a bit of a confession. There is something that I struggle with on a uh, somewhat regular basis. I feel like an electrician who comes to your house to do repairs, and often as they come, they look at the work of previous electricians, and they think to themselves, and sometimes they will verbalize it and say, what was that guy thinking? Why did he do things that way? Did he not know what he was doing? Well, when I hear other preachers preach, I find myself often criticizing them and sometimes unfairly. I was listening to our camp speaker this past week and I felt like he probably didn't communicate something as clearly as he intended, something that I know that I have done on multiple occasions, and I do try not to, but sometimes it happens. But because of what he communicated, I felt like it would be good for me to just kind of address what he shared. On Thursday evening, he talked about shame, and it was defined almost exclusively as a negative thing. And I do understand his intent. He based it out of Genesis chapter 3 where Adam and Eve first sinned and they suddenly found themselves naked and ashamed. The reality is that shame can be a very bad thing, but it also can be a good thing. In fact, let me begin this morning by describing a bad kind of shame, then to mention a good kind of shame, and then I'll go back to another type of shame that is negative. I heard a story this week of a gentleman who at the age of four was involved in a house fire. He got out safely, yet his two-year-old brother did not. Following the fire, the grandparents of this four-year-old blamed him for the death of his two-year-old brother. The result was a shame that was incredibly unhealthy and a shame that never should have been placed on this young man in the first place. He would carry that weight of shame all the days of his life. But a good kind of shame is what we see actually described in Genesis chapter 3. The introduction of sin immediately perverted humanity so that what was previously acceptable became unacceptable. 
The obvious example from the scripture was nakedness. Adam and Eve had already been naked. It wasn't as if suddenly their clothes fell off. They had been naked, but there was no problem with their nakedness. It was not immoral. It was not irresponsible. But the presence of sin changed that. They immediately recognized the problem, and they are ashamed, attempting to cover up their nakedness using fig leaves. But I want you to notice in Genesis 3, you don't have to turn to it, but I'm sure most of you have at least heard the story. I want you to notice that God never rebuked Adam and Eve for their shame. Instead, he covered the reason for their shame. He gave them the skin of an animal to cover up their nakedness. Likewise, when we sin, there is a sense of shame that naturally will occur. I talked about it last Sunday. We used to refer to this, we used to refer to this as conviction. This shame ought to lead us to the point of repentance where we realize that what we did was wrong and that we need to confess and turn from that sin. In a manner, as we repent of our sins, Jesus is covering our sin. He is washing us clean. There was a song that we used to sing in the church, Covered by the Blood. It is the blood of Jesus that covers our sin. It washes it away. Well, if your shame leads you to repentance, it would seem that that shame was a very, very good thing. But this also leads to a second negative type of shame. Unfortunately, there are many who have confessed their sin. They have repented of their sin, choosing to be different people than what they were before yet they still carry the same weight of shame based on the decisions that they had made previously. Jesus has forgiven them, and here comes the problem. Jesus forgave them, but they cannot bring themselves to forgive themselves. There is a weight of shame that becomes a part of their identity, and sure, God forgave me, but I still can't believe I did that. And we carry this weight of shame that no matter what we do, we seem to not be able to let it go. That can become a very, very unhealthy type of shame. I share all of that to say that first, if you are still in the midst of shame because of sin in your life, and you have not yet repented of that sin, then it is time for you to do so. God is faithful and he is just. He will forgive you of your sin. But the other part of this is that some of us have begun to find our identity in our shame. We've already confessed, but it's all about what we did way back when. Others are still in shame over things that were completely out of our hands. And in both of these cases... We fail to see ourselves as God sees us. We are looking through the lens of that shame, yet God sees us as his children, whom he loves very, very much. Let that realization 
replace the shame that has previously identified you. Shame, it can be a great thing if it leads us to repentance, but it cannot be the thing that identifies us for the rest of our lives. Has nothing to do with my message this morning, but I felt like I needed to follow up on the message from this past Thursday night. So that's the extra that you get today. Uh, hopefully that does not overwhelm you and you think I'm never coming back again, but I felt like I needed to share this. Well, this morning, I want us to continue in our study that we've been going through, through First and Second Samuel, but we're going to take a little bit of a detour in order to do it. We've been looking at the heart of a king as it seems that everyone seems to be chasing after something. And so far, we've seen a godly heart. We've seen a courageous heart and a flawed heart. And what's interesting about all three of these is that they all describe the same man. Of course, I'm talking about King David. He was clearly a man after God's own heart as he demonstrated incredible humility and grace, especially in the early years of his life. But he also had a courageous heart. He was the one who stood up to fight against Goliath, even as the rest of the Israelites cowered behind rocks and trees, making sure that he could not see them. But it was the same David, with all of his great qualities, that we also see a flawed heart. As we saw last week, David sacrificed his own character in order to satisfy his own selfish desires. He knew that what he had done was wrong, but his own selfish desires led to a moral defeat in his life, and the truth is his kingdom suffered as well. Well, today I want us to take a look at God's instruction to the Israelites regarding what a king should look like. We're talking about the kings. We're talking about individuals who would lead God's people. Surely God is not silent on what a king should look like. Although we're not in First and Second Samuel, I want you to look at a passage today through the lens of this is what the Israelites should have done in First and Second Samuel. And the reason this is so important to us today is that God has expectations on each of us as well. We're in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 14 to 20 this morning. So I invite you, if you want to, to turn in your Bibles. If not, I'm going to read it to you anyways. As you turn, let me point out that from the beginning, God did not desire for the Israelites to have a human king. His plan was for them to depend upon the Lord as their king. In fact, he had already blessed them through years of such a relationship. He would provide individuals who would serve as judges to help manage the needs of the Israelites, but God would serve as their king but it wasn't good enough for the Israelites. They wanted to be like everybody else. All the nations around them had their king. So in our passage today, we see that God had a plan for this to take place. Again, this is in Deuteronomy 17, beginning in verse 14. This is what it says. When you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you and have taken possession of it and settled in it, and you say, let us set a king over us like all the nations around us. Be sure to appoint over you a king the Lord your God chooses. 
He must be from among your fellow Israelites. Do not place a foreigner over you, one who is not an Israelite. The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way again. He must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver or gold. So it seems very vague. It's nice to have these instructions, but what does this have to do with us? I want you to note that at the beginning here, this passage is written before the Israelites even ask for a king. But that's because the Lord already knows the struggles that are to come. He knows the things that they're going to long for. He knows about King Saul, who would seek to honor himself. He knows about David, who would choose sexual pleasure over obedience to the Lord. And the Lord also knows about David's son Solomon, who would be David's successor to the throne and eventually become known as the wisest and the wealthiest of kings. And I guess that also means that God knew of the many wives which Solomon would accumulate. Anyways, in these instructions, we see a recipe for success. It is a recipe that is not often followed in scripture nor in life, but it is a recipe that still works today. In fact, I will tell you that the primary focus of today's message is found in the fact that if we truly want God's blessing. And I need you to hear this. You're going to hear it a lot this morning. If you truly want God's blessing, then we need to do things God's way. You cannot expect that God will do things your way and he'll be okay with you doing things your way and still expect his blessing to fall upon you. If we truly want God's blessing, then we need to do things God's way. The first thing I want you to see here is that it is always best to follow the Lord's plan. I know that's kind of a, a duh statement, like duh, everybody knows that. It's always best to follow the Lord's plan. The passage tells them to appoint over you a king the Lord your God chooses. You know, there are many times that we have made choices because it seemed right to us. Yet we discovered later that the choice we made was not right with the Lord. Regarding the kingship of God's people, for example, did you know that there were actually 38 different kings over Judah and Israel? I know we are only familiar with a few of those kings. Part of the reason for that is not many of them would have been considered good kings. So we just don't talk about all those other guys. Of course, there would be many things that we often consider in determining who would be called a good king versus a bad king. We may judge them based on whether they reign during a time of peace or whether they reign during a time of war, whether they expanded the kingdom where they saw it decrease, whether they experienced great prosperity or poverty. Maybe it's the length of their reign. These are all things that we still use to determine a leader's success. But the Lord saw it from a much simpler 
perspective. A good king is defined as one who feared the Lord. An evil king was defined as one who did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And we actually see that multiple times throughout 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles. The good kings were simply those who feared the Lord. The evil ones were the ones that did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. I would suggest to you today that the very same things are still true. God is not measuring your success based on your expanded territory or your financial blessing. He simply desires that we would faithfully fear the Lord. And he longs for us to do what is right in the eyes of the Lord. His expectations have not changed at all. There were many kings who did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. But often the problem was simply that God's people failed to seek the Lord's will before they selected the Lord's representative. They did what made sense to them, assuming that it must make sense to the Lord as well. They judged based on their qualities, their appearances, their talents, rather than the anointing of the Lord that would be required of them to adequately lead God's people. I know that I've been guilty of this even in ministry. I have hired people over the years to be a part of my staff that I should have prayed about ahead of time, but it made sense to me at least at the moment. Of course, down the road, I would discover that it was wrong, and often it was a very costly decision. I could give other examples not related to staffing. By the way, I love my staff today. That was not an insult to any of them. Yes, I praise the Lord for that as well. I could give other examples not related to staffing. The point is that I've made the mistake of trying to figure out God's will without actually asking him on multiple occasions. Sounds really dumb, doesn't it? But I doubt that I'm the only person who's ever done that. Listen, no matter how much sense you think it makes to you, it is always better for us to pray first. Isn't it funny? We try to discover God's will without asking him what his will is. God's plan will always be better than your own. It's not an insult to your intellectual ability. It's just the reality of life. God is smarter than you are, and he's smarter than me. Take advantage of what's available to you in him. There's another part of this that I will briefly mention. I mentioned that we've made decisions because they seemed right to us. But often in today's church, a decision is not made merely because it made sense to us, but because it seemed right to our culture. We're so afraid of being labeled as intolerant or hurting the feelings of other people. And the result is that we have become more like the culture around us instead of the culture around us becoming like us as children of God. What is important is not what you think, nor is it what the rest of the world thinks. What matters, what matters most is what God 
thinks. We must always be willing to follow his plan first. The second part of this passage this morning is an encouragement to choose people who are fully devoted to the work that is being done. I would define this as one who is loyal to God's people and his work. This is not about keeping outsiders on the outside. There are multiple examples of people whom God would allow to become people of importance among the Israelites. I think of Rahab as a great example of that. She was from the city of Jericho, but she was welcomed into the community so much so that when we read the genealogy of Christ, she is actually listed in that genealogy. Clearly, it's not that God only loved one group of people. God loved all of humanity, and he welcomed others in. Or maybe David's mighty men. The ones that I talked about last week, not all of them were Israelites, yet they became people of great influence. Instead, the idea here is that there will always be those who are only here for a season. They come along for a while, just until they get what they want, and then they'll move on. In the church world, I've seen this often with pastors and with lay people. I know of a pastor who was in seven churches in seven years. That is not healthy. It's one of the things that I referenced last Sunday as well. I love that this church is made up of people who are committed to the ministry of this church. And that includes both staff who are here for the long term, but also lay people, which includes everyone else that is here. And just to make sure that you have a good reason to be loyal. I want to take a moment this morning and communicate once more who we are as a church. Some of y'all, you've heard this over and over again, and you might even be able to quote some of it, and that's okay. We are a church that still believes that God calls us to be holy, to live consistent lives that reflect the truth of God's word. We believe that God calls us to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God in accordance with Micah 6.8. We believe that we are to be constantly about making disciples who will make a difference. And although we want our ministry to be done well, we are probably not the most entertaining church in town. But we seek to be a church that reflects the presence of God and our attitudes and our actions. Yes, we are imperfect, but we are constantly seeking to be more like Christ in our everything. And as we become more like him, we will impact the local community as well as the world as a whole through the sending of missionaries. God has called us to be world changers, and it is such an honor that God would choose us, not just me, but all of us, to be a part of this church in this world at this time. In my opinion, that is something worth being loyal to. Well, verse 16 points us to the fact that we must trust in the Lord's provision. It says, the king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself, or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. 
He adds almost in parentheses, the Lord already told you not to go back there. There are multiple things that can be addressed here, and I want you to consider this through the lens of all of these kings, even the great ones for a moment. The first issue is one of pride. Saul's downfall began when he began to think too highly of himself. David repeatedly struggled with this. Of course, last week we talked about this with his sin with Bathsheba. But it reappears with David in 1 Chronicles 21. As David orders a census in order that he may brag about how great he has become. Then the conviction of the Lord sets in on him. It's the shame that I talked about at the beginning. And verse 8 of that chapter, again, 1 Chronicles 21, verse 8 says, Then David said to God, I have sinned greatly by doing this. Now I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant. I have done a very foolish thing. The point is that pride was a precursor to failure. Or in the words that I used to hear when I was a kid, pride comes before the fall. In David's case, a pestilence would actually fall upon the people of Israel and 70,000 people would die in a single day simply because of the pride of David. Now in our case, it is unlikely to be so extreme. However, our pride does have the power to become a stumbling block to us. We want others to know how great we are. Look at all that I have acquired. Look what I have done. It's kind of the opposite of the unhealthy shame thing where both are saying, look what I've done, but one is saying it like, wow, look what I've done. And the other is saying, man, look what I have done. It's all about I. It's about me. They both carry similar consequences. Now, we'll add one other thought with that piece of instruction. Don't try to acquire all these horses and don't go back to Egypt to get them. I find it interesting that God is not only instructing them to avoid greed and pride, But he then tells them, don't go back to Egypt. Surely horses were found in other places, not just in Egypt. So why would this piece of instruction be included here? The point may not be so much about the horses, but rather about not going back to where the Lord has already delivered you. Egypt was a place of bondage, a place of sorrow. Why would the Israelites ever go back that way? But they had great horses and other provisions that we could really use. No, don't return to the place where the Lord has already delivered you. Sometimes as dark as our past may have been, We tend to be people who constantly drift toward the familiar. The Israelites would struggle with this all throughout their journey. They would say things like, 
we would have been better off had we stayed in Egypt. Let's go back. Talk about foolishness. But before you blame them, it happens today too. The Lord delivers an individual from alcohol or some other form of addiction. And somewhere along the way, we let our guard down and we find ourselves right back in to the same things that God has already delivered us from previously. Why would we ever go back to what God has already delivered us from? I guess sometimes we remember the great things and we forget the bad things. We remember the feel-good moments. We remember the comfort of routine. But then we forget about the, re the weight of regret and sorrow. We forget about the fact that we cried out to the Lord to deliver us because things seemed so dark while we were in that situation. Why would we want to go back to that? Listen, there is nothing wrong with remembering how we got here. In fact, it is a great thing. But the best days are not behind us. They ought to be ahead of us. So let us press on to take hold of what lies ahead. Well, the final thing that I want you to see today is that we must be faithful to the Lord's purpose. Verse 17 says, he must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. Now I know that on the surface, this just deals with more issues of greed and pride. But it's the first line that I want to draw your attention to. He must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. I'm assuming that Solomon never got this memo. Remember, this was prior to the kings. This instruction is given with God knowing exactly what will take place in the days ahead. In fact, listen to the words of 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 1 through 4. King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. They were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines. And his wives led him astray. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. Y'all have heard me say this before, but he doesn't sound as wise as everybody else has told me he was. I can barely handle one wife. And he took on 700 wives, not including the concubines. I have a great wife. I imagine he was just looking for that great wife and he never could find it. 
It happened exactly as the Lord had warned. There are two things that I get from this. First, it goes back to where we've already been. Doing things God's way is always the best way. And anything less will be a recipe for failure. That's exactly what would happen with Solomon. But the second thing is that God is not content with a few good days. He longs for us to be people who will be faithful until the end. Yes, Solomon started off with great wisdom. Yes, he had some great days as the king of Israel, walking in the footsteps of his father, David. But as Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God. That is word for word from the passage. How many of us have wandered away from the Lord's purposes? There was a time that we found fulfillment in simply doing the work of the Lord. And somewhere along the way, we lost that sense of fulfillment and peace. Maybe it's because of compromises and sin that we have allowed to take root in our lives, much like we talked about last weekend. Or maybe it's because the Christian walk has just become nothing more than a routine, a ritual that we would be involved with every Sunday. It's Sunday, so we've got to go to church. We've got to go do these things because that's the pattern of our lives. But it's no longer about the relationship that we have with Jesus Christ. Either way, it is time for many in the church to once again surrender ourselves to his purposes and plans. I mentioned this earlier in today's message, but I want to challenge you once again to commit yourselves to fulfill the words of Micah chapter 6, verse 8. In it, the prophet asks a question. What does the Lord require of you? He then answers the question for us because he knows that we probably aren't smart enough to figure this out ourselves. He gives three answers. What does the Lord require of you? He requires that you act justly. This is talking about us living in obedience, doing what is right, not just in the eyes of men, but in the eyes of God. The Old Testament law gives us plenty of what it means to act justly. Exodus chapter 20 gives us the Ten Commandments. Yes, there were ten laws that everyone was expected to abide by. The book of Leviticus will actually take it further and give hundreds of laws, pieces of instructions that the people of God ought to follow. Some of those may not make a whole lot of sense to us. We wonder why was God so concerned with that kind of thing? And often it was just to protect his people, but he expected obedience. If we are to be God's people, we ought to act justly. In fact, 
Jesus addressed this. As Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey what I have commanded. There is the expectation that if you genuinely love God, you will do what God expects of you. What does the Lord require of you? To act justly. The second thing is to love mercy. Mercy is a beautiful thing, especially when you're on the receiving end of it. Sometimes it's not so enjoyable when you have to be on the giving end of it. Someone has done you wrong. Someone has done something that they're getting what they deserve. And you have the opportunity to be an agent of mercy and grace. We are called to love mercy. This is about compassionately meeting the needs of other people, even those who are undeserving. Again, it's easy to receive mercy. Not so easy to give it sometimes. What does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy. And the third thing is to walk humbly with your God. What this is about is us allowing God to take the driver's seat in our lives. So often we have dreams and plans. We've got ideas of what lies ahead for us. And we have everything worked out in our mind. Again, we think our way makes sense. And therefore, God must think the same thing. But walking humbly with your God is actually choosing to do things his way as opposed to our way, knowing that he's a whole lot better at this than us. I like the words of Ruth in Ruth chapter 1 verse 16 and 17. She declares where you go. She is talking to Naomi. She says, where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. What she is saying is it's not about me, but I'm going to follow wherever you lead. We ought to be saying the very same thing to our God. God, wherever you take us, I am willing to follow. I have dreams, I have plans, but the greatest dream that I will ever have is to be in the center of your will and where you take me, I will follow. I question today, will we follow the Lord with such abandon where we will simply say, I'm yours Isaiah chapter 6, a beautiful passage of God's calling. Isaiah sees the Lord in his temple. The train of his robe fills the temple with his glory. It's a beautiful thing. The Lord asks the question, who will go for us? Whom shall we send? Who will go for us? And Isaiah responds, here am I, Lord. Send me. May that be the prayer of each one of us today, that we would be willing to follow the Lord wherever he leads with a sense of eagerness. Lord, I'm ready. I'll go. I'll do whatever it is you call us to do. I believe God wants us all to be world changers. Will you answer the call that he placed on you? If you would, bow your heads with me. Father, as we come before you today, we do respond to your calling.
We believe today that you have called us to not only be forgiven of sin, but you have called us to be delivered so that we might be vessels that are fully devoted to you, to be set apart. Lord, I pray that each individual in here would be set apart for your purposes so that we might accomplish things that we could never do on our own. Lord, I pray that you would make your calling so clear in our lives that we would be willing to follow and that we would eagerly move forward as your ambassadors to a world that desperately needs us. Father, I pray today that you would allow us to be marked by this expectation. Help us to be a people that act justly, that love mercy, and walk humbly with our God. Father, let that be more than words, but let it be the desire of our hearts. Father, many of us have fallen short of that so many times. Father, I pray for your forgiveness. I pray that our identity would not be found in our shame, but rather in the grace and the mercy that you have extended to us. Father, let our identity be found in you. I give you praise for what you're going to do through your people who obediently walk in your way. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. It is such a blessing to have each of you with us today. I know that God wants to do great things, and I believe he's going to do it through many of you. Thank you for being a part of this service today, but I encourage you now to go out and be the blessing that we talked about in this message this morning. Go in peace.